start by sharing a little story from theologian Paul Tillich. He's one of the most influential theologians in the 20th century. Born in Germany, eventually came to the United States and wrote a lot of books. But in his little book, Dynamics of Faith, he tells the story of some people who were at the circus and the ringmaster was introducing the tightrope guy. And he was to ride a bike across the tightrope with no safety net. And the ringmaster asked all of the people in the audience to raise their hand if they thought that the tightrope guy would be able to make it across. And they all raised their hands and they shouted and they were all excited about it. And then the ringmaster asked them, raise your hand if you would stand on his shoulders. Not one person raised a hand. Tillich went on to help us in his book to understand that doubt is sometimes a part of faith. He says, if doubt appears, it should not be considered as the negation of faith, but as an element which was always and always will be present in the act of faith. We all have doubt. It's a normal part of exercising our faith. Not denying Okay, I want to make sure you didn't hear me say that. But doubts. We all have doubts. Today's gospel lesson centers on Jesus' resurrection, appearance to the disciples, the evening of the first Easter, and then the following week. You'll recognize the name that Miss Amanda spoke about in her children's message when I introduce you to Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas, and we join Thomas as we explore faith today. There's a basic biblical definition that the writer of Hebrews provides in chapter 11, verse 1, as we seek to understand faith. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance in what we, about what we do not see. As we will learn in today's story, people come to faith differently. Some don't need to see a thing. They just have blind faith, childlike faith, and just come to God. And then others say, show me. I need some evidence. I need to reason things through. There is not a cookie-cutter process for people to come to Christ. Over the next Sundays during the season of Easter, we're going to be looking at a number of faith stories in the Gospels. We'll be exploring faith, and I hope that you'll come back in these upcoming Sundays to join in the journey. But as we set up for our Gospel story today, it's the evening of the first Easter. Earlier that day, Mary Magdalene saw the risen Lord, as you remember from our text last Sunday on Easter Sunday, and through the day, Jesus appeared to a number of his followers. That evening, the disciples were gathered in the upper room. The doors were locked, for they feared the same religious leaders that crucified their Lord. Jesus then appeared miraculously in the room. 
and said, peace be with you. And you'll find that three times throughout our text today. He showed them his hands and his side. And as you can imagine, the disciples were overjoyed. What they had heard from the women was true. Then Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And in verse 22, and with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he said, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Commentators say this part of our passage is a commissioning, a giving of the Holy Spirit, a taste of what was to come at Pentecost, to do, to where God gave the disciples the power to do his work as they were being sent out. And while the power to forgive sins only belongs to God and Jesus, he gives them authority. A.T. Robertson states, he commits to the disciples and to us the power and privilege of giving the assurance of forgiveness of sins by God correctly announcing the terms of the forgiveness. But then there's a twist to the story. We learn from John, who's narrating the gospel story here, that Thomas was not in the room the evening that Jesus appeared on that night. A week later, the disciples were again gathered in the upper room, and Jesus appeared again, and it it was as if he came just for Thomas. In verses 24 through 29, we see what happens next. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came, meaning the the previous week. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. In other words, Show me. I need to see some evidence. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them, and again he said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, I imagine him looking directly at Thomas in the eyes, and he said to Thomas, Put your finger here in my hand. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him in verse 28, My Lord and my God. A confession of faith. In verse 29, Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We don't know a whole lot about Thomas. The name Thomas comes from the Aramaic Poma. His Greek name was Didymus, which means twin. So we do know that he was a twin. We don't know anything about his twin. We do know that when Jesus decided to go to Bethany to see Lazarus, Thomas spoke up and encouraged the other disciples to go with him, so there was some faith there. And the night before Jesus was crucified, you remember Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled. 
you believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And then Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be where I am. And you know the way to the place where I am going, Jesus said. And when no one else would say anything, probably in their fear, Thomas broke the silence. He boldly asked the question that perhaps everyone else wanted to ask. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? And as a result of Thomas's question, the one we call Doubting Thomas, Jesus then answered the passage that many of us have read, have heard, shared at funerals and in sermons and in other ways. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, he told them, you do know him and you have seen him. Now, after all of that and all they had experienced, I don't know why Thomas was not there on that Easter evening when Jesus appeared. I don't know where he was. I don't know what he was up to. The text doesn't say. But we do know that the other disciples told him what they had seen. They let him know that he needed to see the proof. Perhaps Thomas was like the people at the circus. He believed, but he still had some doubts. He needed to see himself, his hands, and his side. Perhaps this example tells us that there is a spectrum of faith. There are different ways that people come to faith. They some have to go through a process of discovering what Jesus, who Jesus was and is and what that means for them. When we look back into the Old Testament, we see faith expressed often uh, by obedience. People were given a command and they followed God out of obedience. They trusted him, expressing their faith. Or in the New Testament, often there were miracles that Jesus performed that brought about faith in people. Often people simply had childlike faith. Jesus said, truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it in Mark 10, 15. And then there are other people, perhaps you know in your life or have met through church or your relationships that just have that blind faith. They are just kind of people that you would like often or that I would like to be. President, former President Jimmy Carter speaks of many of the greats of the faith. Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, Pope John Paul II, and others who became famous in their own ways because they had demonstrated their faith. But in his little book, Living Faith, President Carter tells of a woman close to his family named Annie Mae Rhodes. When Annie was older... She and her handicapped brother lived together, and one night a terrible storm broke through in that part of Georgia, Albany, Georgia. It woke her brother up first, and he then woke up his sister. 
We need to get out of the house. The water's coming. The water's coming. And she said, we've been through all of these things before. We're going to be fine. No, this time the water's coming. And it literally was. And so he helped Annie get out of the car and get outside. The water was coming up into the house. They were able to grab hold of the car. And that was all they could do. They could not get any farther. She lost her home. Her dog died in the flood, lost everything that she had. All she had was her Bible and her brother and the little piece of land her house had sat on. After the storm had settled and people were recovering, she was found helping others. And when some relief workers asked her about her situation, she said this, We need not be concerned. The Lord will take care of us. We have to have faith in God and in ourselves. Blind, childlike faith. And then there's Thomas. Hearing it wasn't enough. He needed some convincing of the resurrection. He needed to see the scars on his hands. He needed to see the scar on his side. That was it. And then he believed. And he said, my Lord and my God. So my question to all of us today is, where are we on the spectrum of faith? Are we people who just accept Christ for who he was and is and what the Bible says about him? Or do we need to reason through it? Do we need to see some action? Do we need to understand more? Do we need to have some knowledge about it all? I submit that there is a spectrum of faith and that God meets us wherever we are and desires that we come to him. No matter where you and I are on the spectrum, God's grace is sufficient as we explore faith. And I believe this weekend when our students and all of our volunteers and other students from all of the other churches who gathered here in our region to do Christ's work, perhaps they helped others to experience Jesus right where they were. I believe that I believe that happened with all my heart. So here's some things that might help us as we explore faith. First, room for doubt makes trusting possible. Paul Tillich, whom I quoted earlier, believed that it is all right to be doubtful as we seek faith. And said, doubt is not the opposite of faith, it is one element of faith. In his gospel, Mark tells of the father whose son was overcome with demons and he had countered Jesus. And then he said, I believe, help with my unbelief. Another translation, I believe, help me with my doubts, help me overcome my doubt. In the same man, believing that Jesus could heal his son, but still expressing doubts. Often we see things in the world and we don't understand them, but we still hold on to our faith. We see a disaster in another part of the world or right near us. We believe, but we still have questions. Sometimes we say, why did that happen? We don't understand it. We see one of our friends who's suffering with cancer and we don't understand it. And sometimes it causes us to have doubts. But as Christians, we know that we cling to our faith. Second, faith puts trust in a person. 
the person of Jesus Christ. At its core, faith is not a belief in a statement or a creed or a doctrine. Faith puts trust in a person, the person of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis said, never, never pin your whole faith on any human being, not if he's the best and wisest in the whole world. He writes, there are lots of nice things you can do with sand, but don't try building a house on it. Thomas placed his trust in the risen Lord, not a doctrine or a mortal human being. Third, community strengthens our faith. I hope you hear this. Community strengthens faith. In the story of Thomas, we see how important Christian community is. Recall that when Jesus made his appearance to the disciples that first Easter evening, there is no mention that Thomas is not with them. We don't find out until the narrator of the gospel tells us in verse 24. But somehow Thomas had slipped out of the fellowship. Like Thomas, if we slip out of the fellowship, we may miss God breaking in, doing something. Thomas missed seeing Jesus, experiencing Jesus. He had slipped out of the fellowship. We may miss out. I encourage you to remain in fellowship with other Christians. That means being part of a church family, part of a small group, part of ongoing regular worship. When we lose a job, when we receive a diagnosis, when a loved one dies, when we don't make the team, when we don't get into the college we hope, when we face temptation, when we face addiction, we may miss the help and the hope and the encouragement that comes through the fellowship of the believers. Make Christian community a priority. And then fourth, if you're taking notes, at some point, we have to let go. At some point, we got to let go. During my first year of seminary, I was introduced to the writings of Dr. Henry Nowen. Dr. Nowen actually died in 1996, and I remember having a special worship service at our seminary uh, focused on the readings and the life of, of Henry Nowen. He was a beloved pastor, priest, theologian, and writer, mostly writing about the spiritual life. John, thank you for what you're doing in our students, by the way. Um, one of the things that Isabella has been working on, I believe it was from last fall, was um, related to Dr. Nowen's teachings. And when I saw that, uh, I was like, I'm glad that our students are experiencing some really good things in our youth ministry. So I, I appreciate that. I do. But Dr. Nowen loved the circus. And while he was in Germany, he was invited to go to the circus and he became fascinated with trapeze artists. The, frying, the flying rodlays were, are like a family of trapeze artists that perform. And while he was there, he became captivated with them. And he writes, I'll never forget how enraptured I became when I first saw the rodlays moving through the air, flying and catching as elegant dancers. The next day, I returned to the circus to see them again and introduced myself to uh, them as one of their great fans. And they invited me back and gave him tickets, and they had dinner together, and 
he became very good friends with the father of the family. And he says, one day I was sitting with Rodley, the leader of the family, in his caravan talking about flying. And uh, Rodley said, as a flyer, I must have complete trust in my catcher. The public might think that I am the great star of the trapeze, but the real star is Joe, my catcher. He has to be there for me with split-second precision and grab me out of the air as I come to him in the long jump. And you all have seen what I mean. And Nowen says, how does it work? And Rodley says, the secret is that the flyer does nothing and the catcher does everything. When I fly to Joe, I have to stretch out my hands, my arms and hands, and wait for him to catch me and pull me safely over the apron behind the catch bar. You do nothing, Nowen said. Nothing, Rodley said. The worst thing a flyer can do is try to catch the catcher. I'm not supposed to catch Joe. It's Joe's task to catch me. A flyer must fly and a catcher must catch. And the flyer must trust. And with outstretched arms that the catcher will be there for him. At some point, we got to let go. At some point, we got to let go of our trapeze and trust the catcher. Jesus did that. He said, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. God comes to us and says, let go. And the question for us is, will we? God came to Abraham and said, go. And he went. Jesus met a rich young ruler one day. Will you let go of your trapeze? Will you give away your possessions or sell them and give the money to the poor and follow me? Jesus spoke to a woman caught in an adulterous relationship. He said, go and sin no more. Will you let go of the relationship that you know dishonors God? What do you need to let go of? Is it a relationship? Is it an attachment to money and stuff that's keeping you from a fuller relationship with God? Is it power and need for control and simply becoming a servant? Is it anger and bitterness? Is it an addiction? Admit it and get help. Is it a habit that we need to let go of? Is it a grudge? Is it a prejudice? Is it our ego and pride? Is it some disobedience? Let us release our trapeze bar and let us trust him who is the catcher. Pray with me. We have heard the story of Thomas, God, today that reminds us that we all have doubt at one point or another. But just like Thomas came to a point where he saw Jesus and touched his hands inside that he said, my Lord and my God. 
at that point, it seems as if he let go. Uh, Father, I, I just come before you today, and I pray that you would help me let go of the things in my life that would help me be more faithful to you, to help you know, to know you more, to serve you more effectively, to be a, a, a better um, witness as I seek to bear witness. And perhaps others echo my prayer today as we each contemplate the things that we need to let go that we might trust you totally and completely with our lives. In Christ's name we pray.